introduce uh kind of like the subject matter of uh of this show by uh just stating that um you know i'm here to uh declare my full and unconditional victory over uh, the entire discipline of economics uh now that i have been vindicated by the federal reserve itself um and uh yeah if you're an economist and you're listening to this uh i'm your dad now and you have to do what i say those are the rules Marshall, I'm going to turn it over to you because you're like the expert here uh, to talk about this uh, Rudd paper that uh, kind of dropped about a month or two ago, uh, telling us that uh, the entire discipline is a lie. Uh, take it away. Sure. Well, well, given that introduction, uh, Jerry, I don't really think there's anything further to say. I mean, we've already <laughs> established that the uh, main takeaway that any listener should have from uh, from this discussion uh, so Rudd is a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Board, where most of the economists are macroeconomists, because the Federal Reserve Board sets macroeconomic policy, so that's who they tend to hire. Um, and you know, very much of the establishment, and you know, basically a, a senior bureaucrat in the country's economic policy making apparatus is how you should uh, uh, imagine him. And you know, these working papers that uh, Fed economists put out are not peer reviewed in the sense so you know it's not like this is a publication in a journal that's been um, you know kind of gone through the ringer of uh, you know what does the macroeconomics establishment that would peer review such an article have to say and I don't know whether he plans on submitting it for review but you know so this is one person's take um, you know and the Fed obviously has some uh, uh, policies about what people are allowed to say in public and specifically in these research in these working papers because you know the fact that it has their um, uh, letterhead on it and whatever like obviously gives it some heft so they wouldn't let you say anything but you know if you're him I imagine you know you can basically write a working paper that clearly is macroeconomics and have it say whatever you want so um, you know basically what the paper says is that the Fed's uh, uh, concern with uh, inflation expectations as a key uh, uh, indicator of the health of the macro economy, and in particular, a key indicator that tells it what to do in fulfilling its mandate of quote unquote price stability, um, that that idea is basically not relevant to fulfilling the mandate of price stability, and we should stop caring about uh, inflation expectations. And that's, you know, 180 degrees at odds with uh, uh, conventional wisdom in uh, macroeconomics about what determines inflation. So that's the, the con uh, context of the paper. Um, you know, Jerry said that, you know, he totally owned the economics profession and, and whatever showed it was worthless. You know, he said, I mean, there's some funny footnotes toward the top about that. Like, uh, you know, it could be that all of economics is bullshit and I'm, you know, I'll drop that in a footnote and then move on to the main subject of this paper. Um, so the main subject of this paper is that not that all of economics is bullshit, but that uh, you know this key sort of policy implication of received wisdom about how the macro economy works um, is mistaken. Uh, so to give some context about like what it would mean, what it means to say that inflation expectations are uh, irrelevant to uh, 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 the outcome of inflation and macroeconomic stability in general, is that. Um, since the so-called rational expectations revolution in macroeconomics, um, the, the, the sort of standard mindset has been that like equilibrium in the macroeconomy is defined by what people expect to happen actually happening. Um, and you can't have an equilibrium without that. Um, in lay terms, that's what the definition of a rational expectations equilibrium is. And so 
what people expect to happen is very important to determining what actually happens if that's how you think the macro economy works. And so you have all of these central bankers and uh, macroeconomists and so on, you know, trying to like put their ear to the ground or like follow the the extremely sensitive seismograph or whatever analogy you want to draw from some other more robust area of science, like seismology, uh, <laughs> saying what uh, uh, people think inflation and what people expect to happen uh, by way of inflation. And and Rudd's thesis, as I said, is basically that that's irrelevant to determining what inflation actually is. Yeah, I mean, this was this was interesting to me because it's sort of like, um, you know, in, in conjunction with a bunch of other materials that I, that I kind of sent out, because it really kind of gets to like a really fundamental question in like the epistemology of economics, right? I mean, you had all these models that were kind of based on uh, this, uh, this notion of like inflation expectations and not just inflation expectations, but like expectations in general. Um, and it really, it feels like this, uh, this is like a, a, an orthodoxy, like an economic orthodoxy that has sort of taken hold, you know, since sort of the, I guess you could call it the neoliberal revolution. And it's been kind of the, the reigning, uh, you know, common sense or received wisdom in economics for the you know a number of decades now, uh, but it sort of feels like there's a, the ice is starting to crack on this, right? Is that 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 like uh, the the this idea that um, you know you could you could construct these like rational agents and like you know whatever build on their like hypothetical expectations of what's going to happen, like it just like as a as a like a, as a genuine like macroeconomic modeling strategy just seems like seems like it's not hanging together particularly well yeah i mean we've known basically since the great recession that like macroeconomic models don't work so it's you know this paper seems like uh you know like a sign that things are finally changing you know in that sense it's like 15 years out of date because uh there's a lot of stuff that happened both during and after the great recession that basically can't be explained by uh, uh, received wisdom. Um, I think it's worth uh, taking a somewhat intellectually intellectual hyphen historical approach to this. Um, you know, when you say that this idea that uh, inflation expectations don't matter seems like it's flying in the face of conventional wisdom in macroeconomics, like that's a very specific macroeconomics that arose in a certain in, in a certain context, namely, you know, starting in the late '60s, um, inflation. Uh, uh, increased in the United States in part because of um, the Vietnam War and like federal budget policies, probably. Um, and, you know, there's at, to this day disagreement about why the so called stagflation crisis in the 1970s hit. But uh, the conventional wisdom at the time was basically that the like policymakers and, and politicians needed the economy to like produce more than its capacity was able to produce. Um, and so they sort of ran it above its potential and that caused a lot of inflation and, you know, at the same time as high unemployment. So those, that combination of things isn't supposed to happen in a, a Keynesian model of the macro of the macroeconomy and, you know, the, the kind of conventional wisdom of the intellectual history is, you know, this showed that Keynes was wrong. Therefore, we need a, a different macroeconomics that uh, emphasizes basically the productive capacity of the economy as opposed to uh, aggregate demand as the driver of of what output is and what uh, inflation is. And that's what gave rise to the uh, rational expectations revolution, you know, which I would say the Great Recession is like a very Great Depression-like 
event, macroeconomic event, which is why, you know, that should have been the occasion on which the macroeconomics that like arose in response to and in opposition to Keynes should have itself been discredited by uh, the Great Recession. In many respects, it was. Um, you know, that's certainly why we had much more expansionary monetary policy in the 2010s and you know now the 2020s than uh, than there was uh, in the you know 70s and 80s. Basically, when policymakers were convinced that they had to contract the economy in order to make it work. Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot you could say. So when you say that, like, the ice is starting to crack, you know, I would say the ice is pretty well cracked, like, in some ways, and then this gets to the kind of larger epistemological uh, uh, context in which this paper arises. It's like, okay, we've, we've known, you know, now, at least since the Great Recession, that, like, the way we, the way that we, like, officially, quote, unquote, think the macroeconomy works is not the way it actually works. We've adjusted policy in you know basically an ad hoc manner relative to our theoretical understanding to reflect that uh absence of or the discrediting of the theory on which previous policy had been based and you know now it's like okay well the, the <laughs> you know the theory is like catching up i guess you could say uh you know or at least that's what the rudd paper indicates um with uh both the change in in policy and the uh empirical discrediting so like you know, that's not the way it's supposed to happen in a uh, like ordered intellectual process, but it's the way it actually does happen. I mean, that sounds like a Cunian scientific revolution, right? Where, you know, th the old order is discredited and it takes a little while to kind of get together a new one. And we definitely don't have a, a new uh, macroeconomics, at least that's a consensus. I mean, I think basically Keynes was right. It, <laughs> I'm not a macroeconomist, but I don't think we need a vast new uh, macroeconomics, but I'm definitely, you know, first of all, not an expert in the subfields, and secondly, I'm not, I'm definitely not speaking for a consensus in the discipline. I thought maybe it would be good to just talk about the sort of fundamental place in macroeconomics of inflation and unemployment and the historical relationship between those and sort of the historical trajectory of unemployment. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that we read prior to this to talking about this was uh the the romer paper about sort of i mean one of his just series of devastating papers in which he he exposes ed prescott for being <laughs> you know basically just kind of inventing a pie in the sky macroeconomic theory that in very amusing terms but anyways uh you know he he sort of situates the relationship between unemployment and inflation uh, in the context of the Volcker shock. And so, I don't know, Marshall, could you just give us, you know, the economists, you know, definition of what is inflation, what is unemployment, what is the Phillips curve, what is the long run Phillips curve? <laughs> oh, God. Well, there's a lot to say that, you know, and it's like, well, what is it when you say the economist definition? Is that like my definition as an economist or is that sure. what economists Well, just, think, just sort of the conventional wisdom, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> So uh, unemployment is the share of the workforce that is not employed. Um, you know, so the controversy there tends to uh, revolve around what counts as being in the workforce or not. You know, there's lots of people who don't have a job who get ruled out of the unemployment rate because they're viewed as not being in the workforce. But I think there's a fairly, uh, you know, basic understanding of that in the in the uh, popular debate. Inflation is the rate of increase of the overall price level. So the controversy about what inflation means as we are experiencing right now when measured inflation is uh, high, at least by the scale of uh, our lifetimes, is 
you know, whether what we're seeing is an overall increase in the price level, uh, you know, so it's not that some goods are getting more expensive while others stay the same, that's a change in relative prices, but rather that all prices in the economy are going up. Um, inflation in a macroeconomic sense typically means all the prices in the economy are going up, you know, not that relative prices are changing. Um, so that that debate is very present right now because measure overall the price indices uh, show large percentage increases year on year. Um, but you know, I would say the better uh, interpretation of that is is a more as reflecting scarcity in certain areas of the economy, uh, not necessarily in an overall increase in the price level. And as to the relationship between those two things, as Andrew adverted, there's this thing called the Phillips curve, which is basically which basically says that um, when uh, unemployment is low, inflation is high, and vice versa. When inflation is low, unemployment is high, and that Phillips curve is a kind of empirical relationship that for uh, a while was rationalized according to a, a Keynesian model of the macroeconomy. So it's basically demand fluctuations, aggregate fluctuations in aggregate demand cause Low, you know, if, if aggregate demand is high, meaning un, that would mean that unemployment is low and inflation is high. You know, your the economy is producing at or near what it's capable of producing, and potentially uh, above it if you believe the kind of idea of potential output as being uh, theoretically coherent or empirically coherent for that matter. Um, and then the reverse, when there's uh, high unemployment and low inflation, is when the aggregate demand is low, uh, meaning that not all the resources are employed in the economy, um, and there's uh, uh, you know people who can't find a job, and and uh, likewise uh, you know basically uh, excess savings um, and not insufficient consumption. That's the kind of uh, Keynesian understanding of how these things happen. So what Prescott was uh, you know associated with this idea that. Um, you know, basically the rate of inflation is independent of the unemployment rate and solely dependent on inflation expectations. Um, so that says that, you know, it's not that it's not fluctuations in aggregate demand that drive these two variables, um, but rather, you know, I guess you could say fluctuations in aggregate supply. Um, the, the sort of stylized fact from the 1970s is that you can have high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. And the way you get that is because uh, resources are scarce and or aggregate demand is in excess of aggregate supply and thus there's you know too much uh, 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 demand like chasing after too few resources bidding up the price of those resources so that's a very uh, specific understanding of where inflation comes from um, and the Volcker shock was basically taking you know that takes I would say a, a specific understanding of where inflation comes from well sorry uh, before yeah. we get to the Volcker shock uh -huh. uh, I, I just wanted to, to go over the fact that like inflation and unemployment are sort of the two major inputs to public economic policy in the sense that like the Federal Reserve has what's called a dual mandate under which their primary mandate, as I understand it, is to control price levels. And then subordinate to that is basically we will also try to get as much employment into the economy as is possible, given that we all that our primary goal is to control price levels. Is that Am I correct? Well, I mean, no, no, you're not correct as a matter of law. You are correct probably as a matter of fact. Well, I mean, I was actually just reading like the Chicago Fed and they basically say like, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I understood the dual mandate to be, you know, sort of co-equal status, 1A yeah. and 1B. But uh -huh. if you read like the Chicago Fed's definition of the dual mandate, they basically say we, we do the price level and then look, we can't tell you how much you know, employment or unemployment we can allow. All we can tell you is that we're going to maximize it under the other constraints 
basically the other constraints being the price level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's illegal. <laughs> the, the, the dual mandate is a body of law and the Federal Reserve is supposed to uh, follow the law. But uh, as you're, I think, correctly adverting, that isn't how the policymakers have chosen to interpret it. I mean, even I mean, I think the dual mandate is it's the Humphrey Hawkins Act of what, 1976 or 78, something like that, that made that created the dual mandate. Uh, officially, and it was like that was exactly the time at which the Federal Reserve adopted the policy uh, that you just outlined. So, the, uh, you know, essentially in defiance of uh, uh, its political masters, and you know, kind of consciously. I mean, the, the whole ideology of the Volcker shock, and uh, you know, the kind of more academic side of things that's represented by uh, Prescott is like it's exactly because the policymakers are telling us. That we have this mandate to reduce unemployment that causes there to be too much inflation, um, and th you know this is very racialized from between the '60s and the '70s. The the you know the the received wisdom you know not you know behind closed doors but not that far behind um, in macroeconomic policymaking is that uh, you know things went to hell when the Fed was. Uh, uh, misled into trying to solve America's social problems by minimizing unemployment in inner cities. Um, and that caused them to uh, 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 permit uh, stagflation to occur in the 1970s. We can never uh, allow that to happen again. And what that means is that um, the people who are in charge of the Fed must be independent of any of any uh, political uh, control. So like, yeah, the Fed exists because of federal law. The Federal Reserve Act says it should exist. Um, and it has a dual mandate because a different federal law, the Humphrey Haw uh, Hawkins Act, says that that's what the Fed has to do. Um, but like these things must be understood as outside politics. And, you know, the best macroeconomic policy is and, and monetary policy is the one that is decided on by policymakers who are like making a point of uh, independence from political considerations. Now, um, yeah, go ahead. Basically, like in interpreting the dual mandate in a way that sort of suborns uh, the, I, and I, as I understand it, the statutory language is actually about full employment, correct? As opposed to, you know, as good as we can get, which is basically, even if you like look at I mean, I just read the Chicago Fed's dual mandate explanation, and they basically just say, well, it's as good as we can get. But uh, it, in so interpreting it, essentially, like, they are creating, well, I, I, I mean, you could call it the reserve army of labor, basically, but they're basically saying that, like, there needs to be a certain percentage of the economy for whom having a job just is, is not, like, part of the deal. Because in order to sort of smooth out the price levels, essentially, basically, it's like, you get the the economy as, as sort of like the, the streamline of the, at the top. And then at the very bottom, there's like these sort of stagnant pools of people who could, you know, when things are really, when there's velocity going all the way down, all the way down to the level, then maybe there there's money flowing through there too. But that generally speaking, like that there's just this group of people and, and obviously historically that's been entirely racialized of uh, essentially people who are just like outside of the part of the economy for which the Federal Reserve is working. Is that- yeah, I mean, I think that's basically a fair, correct, a fair assessment of how they've operated. I mean, certainly not one that's friendly to, that, to their self-conception, but I think is basically right. Um, and this gets us to both the sort of back to the Rudd paper, the significance of inflation expectations, as well as to the Volcker shock um, and it's kind of like political uh, valence. Um, so that idea, the, the re okay, so, 
if you believe that like the cause of the 1970s stagflation crisis was that the Fed was uh, improperly tasked with solving America's social problems, the, the Fed you know, got too, ha- the Fed got too woke, guys. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> you're, you know, I mean that is, I mean, like as we've seen, I mean that's basically not only is that you know kind of the intellectual milieu of the late 60s to the late 70s, you know, to the day, to this day, like, you know, that idea is embodied in, for example, both the end of Reconstruction and the 1870s, that the Red Scare of the 1950s, like that idea that like, oh, no, <laughs> we've gone too far to the left and everything's going to hell, you know, that there, I mean, this is why I basically think that America, American history is a history of Red Scares, because it, it looks like that. Um, so yes, the Federal Reserve got too woke. What happened was basically they were pressured to uh, allow uh, unemployment to get so low to uh, prevent like riots in inner cities. Um, and that uh, created a wage price spiral. So this is a specific story about why, infl- why inflation would arise in the 70s is that basically, uh, you know, having seen inflation happen, workers are in a position to say, oh, when I'm uh, renegotiating my wages, I need a bigger raise in order to um, uh, have uh, preserve my standard of living or even improve it. Um, so I'm going to demand that. And then uh, their employers are like, okay, well, in order to give them the bigger raise, we need to raise prices um, to our customers in order to, to fund that. And that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy and a, a wage price spiral. Um, so there's an implicit you know, uh, assumption, not necessarily implicit, there is an assumption that uh, workers have the power to bargain for higher wages. And to some degree, like, you know, (laughs) I think, given the life experience that all of us have had in the labor markets that we've lived through, the idea that workers have to some degree, like, decide what their wages, you know, that that's kind of uh, outlandish, given how we've experienced the world. But that was uh, you know, part of definitely of the macroeconomic concept, uh, conventional wisdom in the 1970s. And the idea behind the Volcker shock was basically to cause so much unemployment that workers would no longer demand higher wages. Uh, and that would kind of shut down and, and short circuit the wage price spiral that was causing the stagflation crisis in the 1970s. So, you know, Volcker set about consciously creating an unemployment crisis that was the, the uh, recession of like 1981 to 83 or so, um, you know, devastating to America's manufacturing sector um, and disemployed a lot of people. And certainly, uh, you know, given how you unionize the manufacturing sector was a major contributor to deunionization. And then throughout the rest of the 80s, um, you know, basically the, the Reagan administration signaled that uh, private employers could get away with union busting and violation of the Na- National Labor Relations Act and they would face no repercussions for that. So th- that sort of two, one two punch is what destroyed the uh, labor movement in the United States. Um, and it ostensibly short-circuited the wage price spiral uh, dynamics that uh, gave rise to the stagflation crisis. So, you know, Volcker and his partisans consider that policy to have been a success, even as, you know, as Andrew was alluding to it, like, is a major contributor to ongoing social problems in the United States. So in some ways proved their their, uh, analysis of the 1970s to be correct. Um, An interesting point I would say about this is there's also an antitrust angle to this, which is um, that like the 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 sort of Chicago School of Antitrust came to understand the um, stagflation crisis, the 1970s is arising from um, 
you know, kind of uh, the excesses of antitrust policy that in response to uh, uh, wage demands on the part of workers, uh, like multi-stakeholding corporations that were created by uh, the like much more robust antitrust enforcement of that era, uh, had you know their only option was basically to increase prices uh that you know that kind of wage price spiral was like built into the way that individual corporations were structured not just the way that the macro economy was structured and so that had to be short-circuited by uh causing antitrust policy to adopt this consumer welfare standard which basically says low prices at all costs meaning that when the workers come and demand a higher wage instead of acceding to it you fire them uh, i mean I'm, I'm i'm interested in sort of maybe an alternate explanation. And I, I, I read this somewhere, but I don't remember where I read it. But I read a very interesting and good account of the Volcker shock that basically says th this idea that somehow they reset the mainframe of, of the wage price spiral is at least not fully what, what happened. And that really what happened is that through both sort of Federal Reserve policy, you know, and, and the, the sort of neoliberal and right-wing uh, anti-labor turn of the 1980s, and also deregulation and financialization of the economy. Essentially, what happened is that inflation got taken out of the CPI basket of goods and got put into things like NFL teams, Da Vinci paintings, private jets, CEO compensation. That essentially we have the same sort of inflation. I don't know if it's exactly mathematically mathematically equivalent to like what you know, 4%, but that some of it is just hidden in places where uh, it's these extraordinarily extraordinary luxury goods that really only exist when you allow there to be this class of hyper wealthy individuals like a Jeff Bezos. I mean, you know, for instance, I, I don't know how much it cost him to, you know, do enact his little space farce or whatever, but, but, you know, like he's literally, I mean, I think Matt Crispin said, basically, he's basically just shooting money into space. You know, it's like, instead of being taxed, what you can understand that is doing is essentially like some sort of perverse version of modern monetary theory where, where they say, you know, we're going to give you money and then we're going to take some out because there needs to be the right amount of money in the economy and we need to take some out. Well, Bezos is doing that, but he's saying instead of taking some out for, you know, to be nominally put to some public purpose or whatever, or, you know, accounted for in that sort of way, I'm just going to literally fire it into the, the black void of space because there's nothing else that I can do with it that's productive, you know, <laughs> given that we've like reached this point where the declining rate of profits and, you know, the fact that like everyone's just sitting on these massive piles of cash they don't know anything to do with because the productive capacity of the economy has been gutted to the point that there's really nothing to do with it because nothing can be produced. We're all just sort of like whittling away on the same little time-wasting devices and various ways that like people can intercede in transactions that are occurring for no reason other than like a transaction occurring is, you know, some value proposition for everyone involved. And so, you know, that essentially taking this back to the Volcker shock, that basically there used to be a, an economy that was based on sort of simple multiples and grounded in concrete things. And that once you get rid of that and, and create this like layer of incredible like financialization and abstraction and also like unleash this class of like hyper wealthy individuals, that what you've done is you've placed, okay, maybe like, you know, the, the dollar menu in McDonald's will be the dollar menu for 20 years in a row or whatever. But like the price of the Los Angeles Rams will go from being 30 million to $4 billion over the course of, uh, you know, 40 years or something like that, three or four decades. And the reason is because, uh, you know, that's where the inflation of the economy is. I, was, I wonder what you think of that. Well, here's how I would interpret that. I think we have to 
sort of go back to this question of uh, corporate governance, how are corporations organized and to whose benefit? Because that in, the inflation of NFL teams or Jeff Bezos firing a rocket into space, I view as you know reflecting the basically outsized compensation of the people who own profitable corporations um, and the fact that those corporations have become increasingly profitable. So if you think of a multi-stakeholding corporation that has you know workers, consumers, uh, shareholders, suppliers, um, and, you know, the kind of uh, DNA of that corporation is rewritten to disfavor uh, uh, workers and, and favor shareholders, then you're basically re within the corporation, you're redistributing wealth upward um, to the owners. And, you know, this kind of like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, this guy, like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos is like the founder and CEO of, you know, uh, one of the economy's leading corporations, that position makes them much wealthier and, and have a lot more disposable assets than uh, that position would have made the equivalent person uh, in a, a different political economy that has uh, corporations organized in a different way. And I think this discussion of uh, macroeconomic policymaking is like very much a constitutive element in the uh, re-engineering of uh, corporations to favor a different set of set of stakeholders. So, you know, as I said, the kind of received wisdom of the Volkerschacht was that co corporations had within them the kind of were the engines of the wage price spiral. You know, instead of paying people more when they demanded more, um, you know, they became engines of paying shareholders more when they demanded more, as opposed to workers. Um, and, you know, that makes them not the engine of a wage price spiral, but an engine of rising inequality and the ostentatious uh, expenditure of elite uh, resources on things like spaceflight and, and NFL teams. Yeah. So, so this, this discussion, I, you know, um, especially the, the bit about the Volcker shock, like leads me into, I think this, this uh, Romer paper that I also sent around, um, it's called the trouble with macroeconomics. And I just want to read the abstract of, uh, for it because I think it's, uh, uh, it's got a lot of, it brings a lot of heat. Uh, so here it goes. Here's uh, a Paul, uh, Paul Romer um, uh, laying, laying down. Uh, for more than three decades, macroeconomics has gone backwards. The treatment of identification now is no more credible than in the early 1970s, but escapes challenge because it is so much more opaque. Macroeconomic theorists dismiss mere facts by feigning an obtuse ignorance about such simple assertions as tight monetary policy can cause a recession. Their models attribute fluctuations in aggregate variables to imaginary causal forces that are not influenced by the action that any person takes. A parallel with string theory from physics hints that a general failure mode of science that is triggered when respect for highly regarded leaders evolves into a deference to authority that displaces objective fact from its position as the ultimate determinant of scientific truth. Uh, so that's what Paul Romer thinks has uh, has gone wrong with uh, with economics. I, I have to say, you know, when I said earlier that the, the ice was cracking, I guess maybe it's like those cracks are spreading because I, I thought when I read this, uh, you know, this is this is from 2016. I was like, wow, it is. Um, that's a that, that's a spicy take and not a spicy. And it's like a spicy take that you would expect from somebody kind of like maybe on the fringes of the profession. But this is a guy who's kind of like pretty much about as mainstream, I think, as you can reasonably get. And, uh, you know, for him to basically just say, like, actually, all these models just are like are full of like fictitious nonsense that reflects nothing about the real world. I, I feel like that's really significant, you know, significant, maybe in the in, in, in a sense, in a cultural sense, perhaps, you know, even if even if this is something that you knew that you, you know, you know, you might say that you knew 15 years ago um, for this to show up 
it's still, I think, uh, you know, significant um, just from the standpoint of practice within the profession, right? Yeah, I mean, that paper definitely caused a stir when it was written. I mean, my kind of spicy take on the spicy take is that it's actually not uh, uh, devastating enough against mainstream macroeconomics because the the I mean, there, this is a slightly unfair characterization of it, but you know, he is basically criticizing a particular uh, mathematical theoretical uh, uh, kind of tradition within macroeconomics and saying that uh, a different mathematical theoretical tradition within macroeconomics would have been more successful and should have been adopted and wasn't adopted because of essentially ideological uh, uh, preference for the one that was adopted. And, you know, that's the nature of his grievance. Um, and I think there's some uh, merit to that. I mean, it's, it was when that came out and was circulated, it was interesting to me for, it sounds like similar reasons as it was interesting to you as more of a kind of like, what is this mean as a meta comment on the way macroeconomics works as opposed to like whose theory is right has has Romer shown that um, you know he has a better macroeconomic theory uh, you know that was like unjustly ruled out of the profession I think yeah there's there's certainly some element of that um, but the more interesting take is is on the meta level it's like what does this say about a discipline you know as I said like the 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 ice cracked in the Great Recession, if not before, um, and you know this kind of backbiting and uh, internal criticism is you know symptomatic of that, uh, as opposed to being really an intellectual co contribution towards a, a new uh, paradigm in its own right. Um, you know, when you say Romer's like you know very much ensconced in the profession, I mean, I think there's a specific intellectual history there. He was trained in Chicago in the '80s under Lucas, who is you know also a, a protege of uh, Prescott. I think uh, when I read that, I, which I didn't know this before, but that's because I'm not a macroeconomist and certainly not uh, intimately uh, acquainted with these people. Although I did have Lucas at, at one stage as a professor. Um, uh, you know, it seems like there was a, you know, sort of like mentor mentee falling out there at some, I don't know when it happened, how, you know, if it was in the 80s or now, or, or 2016, whenever the paper was written. Um, but essentially, you know, you can see, so there's uh, different theoretical approaches in Lucas's work and the nature of Romer's criticism is that um, the stuff that he thought was promising and should have been pursued as the basis of macroeconomics was sidelined in favor of uh, more false theory that was more ideologically uh, acceptable to the powers that be. So, as I said, I think there's some merit to that, um, you know, but it's also like, you could you could see all of this controversy playing out as like, you know, all of these people are sort of adherence to a fair, failed paradigm and they're kind of pointing the finger and passing the buck as to sort of who's really responsible for, um, a, you know, a, a sort of negative uh, uh, epistemological status as, uh, as there is now, excuse me, as there is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not here to like, uh, let's say, adjudicate necessarily a dispute between uh, whatever, you know, Lucas and Romer. Like, that's not, I guess that's not the thing that, that was interesting to me about it. Uh, but but I did what I did find interesting about this is that, and this touches, by the way, on uh, the, you know, the thing that we were talking about with the Rudd paper uh, with regard to expectations. There's like a little section there that I'll, I'll get to in a second. But um, 
the the thing that's interesting to me is that what's what's going on here what I, what I see happening in in this uh in this process I guess you know and maybe it started before I'm sure it started before the Romer paper like it's not new but it's sort of a it's maybe the most recent example of it is that there's like this right there's this tension in not just um an ideological tension I guess necessarily between uh, like different different economic camps, but like a real, I think, significant philosophical tension about what constitutes like genuine information about the economy and like what should an economic theory look like? And even if Romer, you know, maybe thinks, okay, well, you know, this theory is bad, but I, I had a better theory and that should have been pursued. Like, okay, fine, whatever. We can, you know, one can one can adjudicate that, you know, let's say with with some empirical tests or whatever. Uh, but what's interesting to me is the debate itself, uh, because I think that like a lot of the ways and, and Roma references this, by the way, uh, you know, through, throughout the paper. But a lot of the ways that this debate gets constructed is like uh, has to, has to do you know it harkens back to again this this other uh, bit that I also sent around, which is sort of this Friedmanian I guess epistemology the positive economics uh, essay that that he wrote uh, back in the sixties, um, where which which again is one of those things that kind of like has taken on the status of uh, received either received wisdom or mo of the profession even if it's not necessarily voiced right. And those assumptions are coming under under some heat, coming coming under attack, uh, because it turns out that like the models that are being produced with them are like they just don't like reflect reality, and then like in in kind of like some really bad ways. So that's that's what you know caught my attention about it when I when I was reading it, um, and you know to to circle back to the this bit about uh, expectations. I mean he he like Romer goes through like a like a simple mathematical exercise here. Uh, the content of it I think is not super important, but uh, basically what he what he's doing is like um, at the very at the very end he's he basically says that the there's like a, this tension between building expectations into the model and properly identifying like the causal elements that are actually playing a role within the model. And he basically says that allowing for the possibility that expectations influence behavior makes the identification problem at least twice as bad, which sounds like a pretty devastating critique of, uh, you know, the concept of expectations. That seems bad to me. Like if you can't identify the, the causal elements of your model that are actually driving it, that seems to me to be really like kind of a death knell for uh, that avenue of research in general. Yeah, well, I mean, in that sense, I think the Rover paper and the Rudd paper are are similar because, uh, you know, they're sort of like you you have this internally coherent model of how the macroeconomy works that has a central role for expectations, and you know, Romer is basically criticizing it. I mean, I guess they're both making theoretical critiques of it, but you know, the model. I mean, as as you just characterized, like for one thing, it's not so clear like what the driving force of the model is because there's. Uh, you know, this uh, internal dependence. And then on the other, it's like, okay, so, you know, there's a mathematical object that you're calling expectations that clearly play a central role, but like the empirical analog of that mathematical object doesn't seem to matter at all in, in how the macroeconomy functions. And, you know, that's not too surprising because we can't really identify what, what uh, uh, impact it has even within the model that we think is uh, a good model of how the macroeconomy works. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely a, a devastating criticism. Like you can't tell what the driving forces of your own uh, of your own model are. Um, 
I mean, I, you know, I think you're bringing up the methodology of positive economics makes me, you know, sort of, again, kind of advert the intellectual historical background to all of this, or I should say both of these things distinctly, you know, there, it's like, what is written down on paper in any of these uh, articles, like seems to not be responsive to any kind of context or events, um, but in fact, like very much is. So the methodology of positive economics that you're saying, like characterizes just the way things are done in the field, like that was a contribution to a very specific uh, debate, you know, that had a strong ideological component when it was made. You said it was, it, it, you said it was in the 60s. It's actually published in the early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got that wrong. Uh, the, the publication date on the paper is 1953. Uh, the, yeah. um, the, the, I, I said 60s because I think the PDF that I have of it has the date 1966 in it, but it's actually 1953. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, you know, what was going on then and you know, in part what that essay contributed to was the transition from what's called institutionalist economics to neoclassical economics, or at least post-war neoclassical economics. Um, and, you know, that uh, essay is a giant shifting of the goalpost as to what uh, economics consists of in a way as to rule out institutionalist economics as uh, being genuine uh, contribution to the field. Um, and, you know, likewise, I would say that the adoption of the rational expectations revolution in macro, you know, was the kind of shifting of the goalpost to rule out a Keynesian macroeconomics from uh, what counts as a genuine contribution to the field. And then that's like, you know, you, there, there's this sort of weird duality on both sides of what we might call post-war neoclassical economics that is both micro and macro in that on the one hand they claim to a greater uh empirical insight as a result of um this uh, uh transformation in, in approaches um you know in reality the fact that they don't have that kind of an empirical success is like taken as validation of the theory in some in some cases um you know, I mean, Prescott has this famous uh, or infamous quote that's like, um, you know, we just haven't gotten as good enough at collecting data to show that my theory is actually right, basically, in response to uh, data that showed his theory was not not correct. Um, you know what I find interesting about that is like, it's interesting to think about, like, I think economists see themselves as be basically being like, you know, their their facts and their models are sort of in the driver's seat of reality, which then, you know, maybe is upstream of some kind of somebody's conception of reality which then presumably is upstream of that person's you know if they're like someone who is in an ability to enact a different way of doing the economy then like that's how sort of the economy is produced and that you know that essentially the first movement is you know that there's a a, a revolution in the understanding of empirical reality that then results in you know policy prescriptions downstream from that now where any evidence for this exists, I don't know. What what seems more likely that that like people are just that all these economists are just uh, uh, unearthing all these beautiful truth nuggets, and then you know those are being fed into the politics machine and producing optimal outcomes, or that there was deep ideological currents throughout like the 20th and 21st centuries that like recruited to them particular arguments from macroeconomics that served particular purposes. The the chief among those essentially being that like. The economy exists as a separate and natural independent entity from the government or the state. Well, you know, the state just needs to get out of the way, which, of course, you know, the state controls the market. The state is, you know, literally like the boundary. If the market is the swimming pool, the, the state is the walls of the swimming pool. The state determines what's legal and what's illegal. The state determines, well, you know, it's so many things. It's, it's but, but just basically, you know, whenever uh, politicians act like their hands are tied because there's, the, you know, it's just, well, it's just 
the market, you know, the independent market that we can't, you know, govern or control. It's like, well, you can just make anything illegal. But of course, things have gotten like so far out of the box that like state capacity has withered away so, so intensely. And like the thing has jumped the barrier, you know, this whatever sort of economic system we live in now it exists outside of states and, and like kind of commandeers them to its purposes, seeking, you know, essentially fictitious money moving profits wherever it goes without actually like, you know, attempting to do anything concrete and real. You know, and I think that that's sort of the biggest critique that I would have of, of these sort of, you know, amusing as they are, these these Romer papers that he, he he writes a lot of them and they're very funny. And it's very funny and satisfying to see, you know, sort of the the, the clown princes of, you know, the, the economic stooges of, you know, this turn toward whatever form of economy we have now being lambasted for the fact that, you know, they really don't, their models don't hold water. But at the same time, assuming the, so, so, some sort of like economic primacy, you know, essentially the, the way we're going to figure out what to do with the economy that's best is to, 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 to unearth the truth nugget and feed it into the politics machine. I think it's got it exactly backwards. The only thing that can put pressure on the policymakers to define the market in a way that, you know, if you want these key, indi- key indicators of the economy, such as unemployment and inflation to react differently and like for different sort of assumptions to govern how those things react. The only way to do that is to like, to have the power to do it. It's, and, and, and I don't think that you build that power simply by like producing more and better truth to, you know, feed into these people who, uh, you know, they just, they, they are the sort of the dead end uh, of the dead consensus, you know, or well, very much live, but you know, this, this consensus that governs that, that, that it keeps making everything worse, uh, you know, the same, but worse, as we would say. And, uh, <laughs> You know, it's sort of like we've we've gone up in this rocket ship, and uh, you know, I think this is sort of like the 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 like a, maybe a little bit of a Marxian way of looking at it is that you know, capitalism was supposed to propel us to a certain point, at which point you know, a new stage would would propel forward under a different sort of fuel and propellant, and a different way of organizing things would be needed to push forward. But we've stayed in that part of the rocket that fell away and is just kind of floating back to Earth, and now we're just, just trying to describe all these epiphenomena of like, well, why do why do things keep tumbling this way and falling this way? It's like, well, maybe because we stopped, you know, <laughs> we, we stayed with the thing that's falling. We didn't go, you know, we didn't figure out what the next step was. We're just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over and hoping that it produces different results. The people who sort of organize things to do it that way are profiting immensely from moving money from one little corner to the other. At the end of the day, I don't think that like, you know, meta critiques within the economics community have a lot to say about that sort of more basic reality, as I see it, at least. Yeah, what I was what's interesting to me about this, though, is that like granting like all all the things that Andrew was saying, what I like to what I sort of like to, I guess, I don't know, focus some intellectual attention on is the way that I mean, I'm glad that Marshall talked about the way that, um, you know, Friedman constructed his work so that he could cut the institutionalists out of the out of the field, essentially, right, by defining like whatever they were doing is not being science, right? Because there's like an interesting um, like maneuver going on here, like an interesting uh, maneuver going on from actually from two ends, both like the Friedman end and uh, also the Hayekian end, which so I like, you know, I sent around the essay, the use of knowledge in society essay. And I think they're like, they represent like two interesting dualities um, that converge on the same policy goals, but they both kind of serve to set up the, the boundaries of like what counts as the economics profession, right? Because the problem for, let's say, for Friedman, right, is that he has to 
figure out a way of like answering these institutionalists who are saying that like, well, you know, you have these models, right? But the models themselves don't reflect anything real, real about the world. So that's like a charge that he has to answer because in order for him to, uh, in order for him to like, let's say, make a facially plausible case to policymakers, let's say that they should do what, what he says they should do, right? You have to at least have the veneer of some kind of like objective, I don't know, uh, some, some veneer of objectivity, right? Some veneer of science. And so, you know, from his perspective, right, is like he has to construct this defense that allows him to cut the institutionalists out of the picture. Um, and he does this, interestingly, you know, by by kind of, I, I would say, kind of engaging in a in, uh, sort of some epistemic nihilism, you know, so I like I, my training is in physics. And so I am, you know, I, I read his physics examples. And I was just aghast uh, because, you know, no self-respecting physicist would would treat his their science this way. But the, uh, you know, the basic idea that that he puts forth is this notion that like, well, actually, none of these assumptions matter. And in fact, like, the, all that matters is whether or not you can predict some parameters, right? Like this, the, the economics is like just a story where you build some kind of model and the model doesn't have to say anything specific about what's happening in the world. It just has to be like, essentially, he doesn't, he doesn't use this word, but I'm going to use it for him. It has to be like tractable and it has to be, um, and it has to like predict something interesting, right? And you kind of just measure the, the success of the model, like based on his prediction. He's very cagey about the way that he uh, juggles causality in this, because there are times when he like he he drops this like very um, intense, you know, very intense statement. Then he kind of like walks it back because it's kind of obvious that if you just if you just put that out there, you're like opening yourself up to essentially spurious correlations of all sorts. Right. So then he has to like walk it back by like saying, well, actually, you know, the test of the model is also the test of its assumptions and stuff. And and. You know, it's it, there's like a lot of what essentially amounts to like three card Monty here, where he's like moving the object of interest around so that you can't quite like fixate on it, because as soon as you fixate on it, you start saying like, wait a second, like this doesn't this doesn't hang together as like a scientific project. Uh, so he keeps moving it around so that it's hard to keep track of. And on the other hand, you have like the Hayekian thing where, uh, you know, Hayek is like. He's playing a different game um, where, uh, at least in my view, and the game that he's playing is he he realizes, I think, and he's more insightful, I think, than Friedman in this in this way, is that he realizes that predictability, right, like the ability to like predict the economy from from any angle, right, whether you call it neoclassical, whether you call it like socialist, whether you call it whatever you want to call it, right, that predictability is like dangerous in and of itself because that gives the planner information that they need to like actually plan right because if you can just construct a model and let's say let's say you're like committed Friedmanian right and you construct a model and your model like just gives you like perfect outputs well that's great now you are the central planner right like maybe you're a Friedmanian central planner but so what right uh, and for Hayek like that's a terrible outcome right so he's defending he's defending like the profession from a completely different angle where he's saying like no no um, not only is it like not desirable for there to be a central planner, but central planners are in fact like not possible under any circumstances because all those things, like all those assumptions that Friedman is happy to throw away about like he has he has this aside there about like, you know, what do you need to know like if you want to analyze the wheat market? Uh 
which is itself like pretty comical. But Hayek is, you know, and, and Friedman's like ready to throw away like all the particulars about like wheat itself, like wheat as a physical commodity. Like he doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about like whether the time series essentially is predictable. Right. Hayek is like, no, we can't do that because if we could predict it, like we'd be the planner and that's the worst thing that you could be. So he has to be like, no, that actually all of these particulars matter down to like the last particular. And the only person who can know the particulars is like the exact individual, like on the spot at that very moment. Anyway, what I found interesting about these like sort of dual maneuvers that are really going on at the same time. I mean, the Hayek is like, you know, the Friedman's from 53, the Hayek is from 45 or 46 or something like that uh, is like they converge on the same like location. They converge on the same policy outcomes like that. The kind of, you know, essentially these are the two fathers, if you want to call it that, of, of neoliberalism. But they but they take it. They, they come at it from like a like two very incoherent viewpoints where if you were to put them together, like, man, they would look really weird. Right. Like these are things that are extremely like an extreme intellectual tension with each other. Um, but, uh, but all of that is just subsumed under like the desirability, like their shared desirability of policy outcomes. So anyway, that was like the long spiel that I wanted to like to throw out there because I, I thought that that reading up on all of these things and like following these references kind of like made me appreciate at least on a, I don't know, aesthetic or intellectual level, like these maneuvers that were going on and how they converged on, uh, at the, in, into the same place. What strikes me is like these, you know, especially the Friedman argument, I think is, you know, maybe what's unsaid there is like the thing that he really cares about is like, does this, does this model, does this argument, does this set of like, you know, social science or whatever I'm going to call it, does it like do its, this sort of unstated like extra purpose, which is like making people do what I want them to do. And I think that like, for someone who is so invested in like all these ideas, you know, the marketplace of ideas and, you know, it's very telling. I think that he's like, well, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to account for any particular input. We don't have to account for any particular output. All we got to do is put a bunch of numbers in the sheet and see what comes out. And, you know, hey, if we can, we, if we can convince some rube that like the way that we fit this model to, you know, from X to Y to Y to Z gets us, is further evidence for what we already wanted to do to begin with, then you know, that's really what our project is. That's, to me, that's sort of what's being staked out in that essay is essentially the project is to, you know, you know what you want to do. You know what, you know what the project is. Let's figure out like how to best muster evidence to get there. And, you know, reality, reality, shmeality, we don't need that stuff. You know, what we need is, is something that's gonna, with our fancy PhDs and, you know, we've made a Nobel prize for ourselves and blah, blah, blah. We're just as much of a science as anyone else. And, we're just going to walk around and, and swing, swing the big science dick at everyone and say, you know, we're, do it, do what you want. We're, you know, do what we want you to do because uh, the numbers said it. And, uh, and to me, that's what that essay stands for. And I, you know what I got to say, I, res I respect it. I think that that's a, a perfectly salient approach to take to, uh, you know, mustering technical evidence for things you want to do. Yeah, I mean, Phil Murawski, who's a, a intellectual historian of uh, the economics profession, among other things, made that point i would say pretty well which you know i mean i guess he uh, pretty well he definitely embellishes on it but his his hypothesis is that like you know for all these people who talk about the marketplace of ideas uh, you know they're like the most kind of vanguardist political parties solely seeking to bring about their their ideological and uh, political aims through whatever means necessary and as you say like reality shmeality 
whatever. Um, whereas, you know, the people who like ostensibly have an official better vision of how the world should be organized, you know, constantly get lost in this question of like, oh, but, but, you know, we have to adhere to, you know, we have to have our theories adhere to reality, you know, like we can't, you know, kind of stray outside the bounds of what's uh, intellectually acceptable in the current uh, uh, kind of disposition of understandings of like of epistemological understandings as well as like the power of uh determining what counts as knowledge you know we have to act within it rather than trying to uh change its borders yeah and i was just going to say that that ties in neatly to you know when i was thinking about the fed dual mandate i was kind of thinking about like the post-enlightenment dual mandate which is like seek right answers but everyone is the you know sovereign of their own head and so you know you have this part of the enlightenment project that says we're doing science we're finding the right answer we are unearthing truth and then you have this other part of of you know your enlightenment inheritance that basically says this space up here in my noggin is inviolate no one can tell me what goes in there you know it's just it's between me and my conscience and you know what if i don't want to believe uh the you know supposed um you know uh derived truth from all of these sort of, uh, you know, enlightenment truth-seeking projects, well, then I don't have to. And it's, it's interesting because those are in conflict. I mean, you see it on the right and the left where people will just, you know, preserve the idea that's in their head to the contrary, uh, you know, despite any evidence to the contrary. And, uh, you know, this just, it's just, it's part of how people are. It's, it's part of, you know, it's part of like how we're programmed to operate. I don't think that there's, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm not here to sit here and say, oh, people are so stupid. They just need to believe the experts or, oh, the experts are so stupid. They just need to stop doing expert work and just, you know, surrender to the fact that like, we're all just at the end of the day, just apes or whatever. I just find that it, it, there's an interesting relationship between those two things that I think, you know, there's, I think a lot of things that make us crazy are things where it's like we're, we're on one side for one thing and on a different side for the other when it comes to like whether we, you know, the thing we're, we're preserving is like the sanctity of our own thought pattern or, you know, the, the need for some sort of like uh, collective push toward the truth. I, I think I, I guess you know maybe this is a this is a little bit uh, high modernist of me, but I sort of like you know tend to uh, again this is probably part of my training, but I sort of tend to operate on the assumption that like the that the world is knowable and it's like organized and sort of like at least the physical world certainly is organized in some sensible way, and that you know by judicious examination of the facts you can. Uh, come to some like reasonably stable conclusions about like what works and what doesn't. And of course, like that's different uh, in, uh, you know, in economics um, or, you know, in social sciences generally, because you're dealing with things that aren't, you know, quite as like they're, you know, what, what Rorty would have called brute facts about the world. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, not to say that there are like laws necessarily, let's say, you know, in economics or whatever, but that that you can like study a system and you can come to a conclusion about like what matters within that system. But from from my perspective, it's like part of the like the trick to doing this, part of like the, the real foundation of doing this is that you have to be able to draw a connection between like causes and effects, right? I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm like a bad human. Like I sort of, you know, I I, I read I've I've read the inquiry and I've nodded along and I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like, okay. Sure, technically formally it's, you know, you might you might say, okay, like you can't draw, you can't conclude that the sun will rise tomorrow, but the sun will rise tomorrow. You know, it's a, it's like a nice idea when you're, when you're reading it, but then you, you think about like kind of how the world really works and you're like, all right, you know, there are causal forces in the world and they, they make things happen. Right. And there are causal forces in society too. Right. So 
you know, for, for me, like trying to get at like what those causal forces are, it's important, right? And that doesn't mean that they're the only forces or that they are, or that even by, let's say, uh, getting at it, you could, you could necessarily like convince somebody to do something. Like, I don't know that necessarily intellectual debate has that power. I think those, I think, I think where, where I, where I do agree with Hume is that, you know, that the, re, that reason is slave to the passions, but you know, having, having said that, I think it's like, you know, if we're serious about this as like an intellectual effort, then I think we have to be serious about causes and effects. And like what, what I found striking is that like, you know, again, going through this kind of like intellectual history, it really seems that like there's this something happens. And I don't know if it happens around the time, like it certainly happens with Friedman's help. I don't know if it ha- happens sort of independently of him or, you know, in parallel with him. But there, it feels like at some point, like something gets decoupled, right? Like the, the the whole like notion of like cause and effect, like get get decoupled from each other. And then you end up in this weird space where, you know, you're doing what, what Romer calls like, uh, you know, phlogiston, right? I mean, he's talking about like technology, you know, the things that we call technology shocks and he calls them phlogiston because they're just like residuals that are left over after you've done, you've built your model. Unlike that should be just on a basic philosophical level, like really concerning to anybody who's a practitioner in the field, right? Like if, if, if I, you know, in, in, you know, in physics, there are other problems, but like if, if somebody just told me like, well, you know, by, by virtue of uh, the fact that like there's a residual in this equation, you have to believe that like, it also has, it, it's, it's like, I can, I can assign it like any power I want. That would be weird. That would be bad. Right. I would be like really concerned about that. <laughs> So from that perspective, I, I think that, um, you know, all of the, the, this, that this discussion is interesting because it like, it really gets at this, it really gets a causality, which I think is like, what's, what's really important, right? When you're, when you're doing any kind of science. I, I wanted to add to that, that like, I think, you know, Hume is, is it good to read on causality because as much as like, you know, you can get into sort of these dorm room edge cases where you're arguing that like, there's, you know, that there's no power of induction whatsoever and that kind of stuff. Uh, having a healthy respect for the fact that causality is a like an anthropocentric way of making sense of undifferentiated sense experience and not like some a natural feature of the universe that in other words, without someone to observe a causal relationship, no causal relationship meaningfully exists. That's one thing that's important to know. And also that it's a linguistic construct. When we say cause, we mean a lot of different things. You know, we, we might mean something as, as, as basic as billiard ball, ball causation, where you say, oh, the white ball hits the, the blue ball, the blue ball goes in the pocket. Couldn't be any simpler than that. Or we could mean something like uh, that is, you know, infinitely more abstract from that. And the fact that we use the same words for those two phenomena does not mean that they actually have any real relationship to one another. It's merely like, you know, by by metaphor and likeness that, you know, we've created these linguistic constructs by which we call, you know, something called a causal relationship. And again, it's only by the fact that we are observing it. We, you know, stand in that position to observe it. That causal that causality is imbued with any meaning to begin with, and so having these, you know, I think important sort of they sound kind of pie in the sky, but ha- but having that healthy respect for what causation actually is and the kind like the limits of what it can do as a as a result of that, and you know, some amount of skepticism about what cause causality this you know what talking about causality can actually mean. Uh, I think that's a good reason to read, you know. David Hume on causation, or just to think about these things more generally speaking. Agreed. I mean, like, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to get too too deep into the sort of the, the Humean swamp here, uh, just because, like, you know, you could like if if we if we went in that direction, it could go on forever. 
like I said, you know, I'm I am a like a you know high modernist simpleton in this regard. So it's hard for me to believe that um, based on what I know, let's say about the physical world, that um, that causality is a purely linguistic construct. I mean, certainly, like you know, in our theories, it has a linguistic role, obviously, because everything does. But you know, my my personal feeling is that uh, from the way that kind of uh, that, that let's say the universe hangs together it's it's hard to it would be hard for me to believe that it's just a convention right but anyway i don't, I don't want to i don't wanna, like i said i don't want to get too, too just deep just to that. be clear what i what i mean by that is that it's trivial whether it is or not because we are people the only way we observe it is through our linguistics oh, if, yeah, it has sure. some deeper, if it has some deeper meaning than that well sure that might be interesting in an abstract sense but like to us the only meaning that is meaningful for it to have is the meaning to which we are able to put it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure. saying I'm, I'm agnostic on the idea of like you know whether you know the motion of the planets can be meaningfully causal if there's no one there to see it. You know, uh, which is an, an interesting question on some level, but it doesn't really cash out in like a political discussion. I guess is all I'm saying. So, I, I guess I guess the question that I I kind of want to ask here, and and you know this is maybe something that I want to kick over to Marshall is like okay, you know we've kind of talked about this uh, these pro- these identification problems and. Uh, kind of the fact that a lot of these theories that people have been working with for decades seem to have, um, you know, run aground on either empirical uh, problems or just uh, coherence problems. But like, let's say that, you know, in some ideal world, we had like, we had a chance to reconstruct sort of economics from the ground up. Like, I'm curious, like, what, what do you think that would look like? Because uh, I have some, I have some, like, my own thoughts, but, but I kind of want to hear, you know, for, you know, from you as like a, as like a practitioner of the field, like, if you, if you just, if somebody told you, like, all right, we're like, get in, we're rebuilding economics, like, what would be, like, what would be your project? Like, what would you think, like, what do you think you would focus on? Or like, how would you, like, where would you start? Well, well, I mean, that's certainly a... Uh... <laughs> subject matter enough for a whole other podcast sure episode. yeah yeah i'm just i'm, I'm just i'm throwing it out kind of like as a as a sort of an open-ended like pick pick your poison yeah to, to get back to what we were talking about with uh, the romer paper and the rudd paper for example um you know what those papers are example are you know economists like who definitely come from within the mainstream of the discipline you know expressing the fact that there is not consensus within the discipline as to the reality of whatever phenomena are purportedly being explained in this case having to do with the macroeconomy so that expression of lack of consensus is like deeply distasteful so i would say that you know one characteristic of how the field you know, the sociology, if you might call it that, of the field of economics is an insistence on consensus, even as the content of that consensus uh, changes radically, uh, you know, generation to generation. You know, one constant is we can admit at any time that there's any disagreement about how the macroeconomy works, because that's like a mutually agreed upon claim to authority about how the economy works. Like if it, if it, if it's, you know, very evident that like people who are credentialed, established economists, you know, with fancy university appointments at the departments that we all agree are the best, um, disagreeing with one another in the manner that those authors have done, um, you know, that's like, okay, well, if they don't agree on how the economy works, then how, you know, who, how can they say that somebody else who's outside that um, intellectual milieu uh, is wrong, you know. It's like, well, why, why can't I have my own theory if you don't, if you don't agree? Um, and so, in that sense, like, I would say that's a, a 
constitutive element of the field's claim to a disproportionate uh, impact on policy or just outside its own boundaries on other fields and so on is the idea that like economics is a thing that all economists agree on what it is and what its implications are and how to do it. In some sense, that's uh, uh, you know contained within the the Friedman essay we were talking about earlier. Um, and if I was reconstructing the field from the ground up, it would be to embrace the idea that um, we can have dissensus within the field and the policy influences you know a price worth paying if in fact you know a social service a, a social um uh benefit for us to you know kind of retire for a few generations from um that disproportionate policy impact the better to understand how the economy actually works um yeah so that's i mean the the, the short answer is like stop caring about how you know the the prestige and how we appear to outsiders and uh, at a sensible false consensus as a, as a crucial uh, uh, constitutive element of uh, how the field appears to outsiders. And instead, you know, if the subject matter of what economists study is in fact the foremost uh, concern here in understanding that subject matter, you know, that's going to ne necessitate um, a, a, a significant amount of dissensus. And, you know, I don't know how you then, you know, kind of reconstruct a consensus from that. Um, you know, but I think that's the kind of if I was going to say like here's how things are and here's how things should be and here's how here's what's different about those two things, um, it would be it would be that. I was also going to just mention like there's this corrosive influence of law in, in economics and and vice versa, and I think that like economics as a field has really suffered for its participation uh, and sort of recruitment into the legal arena. Uh, speaking from experience here. That essentially, like, you know, most practicing economists in this country who are not in the in the academy, and in, in fact, many, in fact, many who are, are essentially lawyers by another name. You know, they, they what they do is they write briefs. Now they're like Brandeis briefs, you know, they're they're nominally social science, but they write briefs in law cases that say that X and Y, you know, does or does not constitute some kind of you know illegal monopoly or that you know this is the you know proper rate of profit to assume in a hypothetical regulated market where like a real market doesn't exist but we're just going to imagine that one does exist so that we can figure out how much money your utility can is allowed to charge you you know some of the very like the most prestigious people in the field are making hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars writing doing this legal work talk about like <laughs> something that fosters a lot of dissensus within the field is if you are essentially being a paid advocate of in, in many cases a giant company uh, arguing for, you know, what is it that the giant company wants to do? At that point, your claim to, to be doing science when like the bulk of your work is really ad is, is, is advocacy work for major corporations, uh, you, you know, at least it seems to me that those might be at cross purposes at, at, at some point. So yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's the utility of maintaining the pretense of consensus is that, right. you know, that means that you can speak authoritatively, like for good reason, you know, what the economic reality is uh, relevant to the uh, adjudication of specific cases, or even the drafting of policy. Um, and so if you speak with ostensibly one voice as to sort of like what economics has to say about a given subject, you know, wait, like, your your opinion your brandeis brief is going to be uh much more valuable than if it's just like oh here's one guy's opinion well why should we listen to that you know when we have some other economists now as you're alluding to the reality is like yeah everybody you know you have a big uh uh, uh legal dispute or uh you know policy making effort like you know 
equity utilities setting rates or something like that. It's like, yeah, every party can bring an economist to the table, but like what they're all, the, the world in which they're all kind of mutually agreeing to operate is one in which, you know, there is a consensus within economics so that like the idea of bringing an economist to the table isn't just like crazy right off the bat, which sustains a lot of practices and, and you know, six figure, if not seven figure salaries as, as you alluded right. to. So the world that I outlined as being the reconstruction of the field on sounder principles of embracing dissensus where, you know, what matters most is ability to explain a certain set of phenomena that we, that we call the economy. And, you know, we don't, necessarily know how it works but you know we're, we don't we certainly don't all agree about how it works you know that's a world that puts all those people out of business because you know then there's no reason why they should their opinion should be the ones that uh triumph in this case uh or like you know suppose you have some sort of legal dispute where everyone shows up with their economists like in the alternative world you have a the legal dispute still exists and everyone is is trying to kind of bring forward factual claims but the, the the person like you can have people with a different phd in a different field or even not a phd at all who's like qualified to make those claims you know goes away if we if, if it's like no longer agreed upon that uh uh the field is characterized by a consensus yeah i agree with that sorry i, I need to get going and make some dinner but uh, all right this has been very interesting Good. This is like my uh, platonic ideal of a podcast, if that makes sense. So <laughs> this is this has been fun. This is this is good. Uh, I, I'm like I'm I'm excited for this uh, for this stuff. All right. Well, you know, I will uh, check out, check out. But no need for you guys to end here. All right. So we had to let Marshall go. So now we're going to transition to a more free form flip side of the episode, where Andrew and I are just going to kibitz about uh, various things, some of which are related to the previous content, and some of which are not. We'll see where it goes.